So open up your Bibles back to that same place, Colossians 1, 19 through 22. And we're going to do a little bit of a review today as we poke and prod a little bit further in that passage. And so when we were together a couple weeks ago, one of the things we reviewed were there are five different aspects of salvation. And so we talked about those really briefly, just highlighted them. And so one of them was justification. The sinner stands before God as the accused and is declared righteous. So let's just explain this to make sure we're all clear about it. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about that salvation is when a man, woman, or child comes to an understanding that they cannot make their sin payment themselves. And they have a burden that they cannot take care of. They have a payment that they cannot make. They understand that there's nothing they can do in their own power at all to take away the shame, the guilt of their sin. And they come to an understanding that is through the death of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the resurrection three days after, that they come to an understanding that it's his death and resurrection that paid for the sin of all mankind. And all that any man, woman, or child has to do is believe that and say, I want his payment to be my payment. I want his death to be my death. And that is salvation. It is as simple as believing. Now then, there's five different ways that we can articulate that. There's five different aspects of that. And so that's what I want to do this morning, just really quickly. One of them is justification. And so what it means is that the sinner, I, stood before God as accused. And when I trusted Christ as a 12-year-old, I was declared righteous. That is justification. Redemption. I, as a 12-year-old, stood before God as a slave. And when I said that I confessed my sins and I wanted to take Christ as my Savior and his death as my death, I was granted freedom by a ransom paid by Jesus. I was redeemed by Jesus' death for myself. Forgiveness. I, as a 12-year-old, I stood before God as a debtor. I owed a debt for my sin. And that sin had been paid and is forgotten. Paid by Christ and is forgotten. Sonship. As that 12-year-old boy, I stood before God as a stranger. Someone unknown to him, someone not in his family. And when I, when I professed my faith in him, he immediately made me his son and brought me into his family. And everything that was his was mine. And then finally, reconciliation. As that 12-year-old boy, I stood before God as an enemy. I stood before him as an alien, as hostile to him. And I became a friend in that moment. Peace was made with God when I trusted Christ as my Savior. And it's this last one. So in all those, we stood before God as the accused, and he declared us as righteous. We stood before God as a slave, and he granted us freedom. We stood before God as a debtor, and, we, we, and he forgot our debt. We stood before God as an enemy, and he made us a friend. And we stood before God as a stranger, and he called us his son. And that last passage, the last time we were reading about that fifth aspect, reconciliation. Let's read this passage, all right? Let's read this passage again out of Colossians. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of cross, blood of the, his cross, through him, 
I say whether all things, where things on earth are things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So that's our passage. That's from the New American Standard. And that's our passage for today, as it was a couple weeks ago. But we're going to kind of pick it apart a little bit. But again, I want to do a little bit of review on it so that we can pick up what right we were. So here we are. Verse 20, it says that God is reconciling all things to himself. Reconcile means to cause things to be friendly again, to bring them back into harmony, to make peace. And that's that word he's using there. And so in, in, in verse 21, you see that it says that mankind was alienated. In other words, not in harmony, not in peace, not at peace with God. And by nature, man is separated from God. Romans 3.23 says, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By man's deeds, he is alienated from God. We did, and, and, and by his condition, he's dead in sin and without life. Man is incapacitated and unable to deal with his sin problem. And, there's no, and, there, and, and if there's to be any reconciliation, if there's going to be any peace made between God and man, it will be because God approaches man and offers it. You know, here's this passage in John 1. But as many as received him, speaking about Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. There's the sonship. And to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. What is he saying there? This is what I'm saying that is that when, when God is reconciling man to himself, when man and God are becoming friends, when they're making peace, it is not through through not, they were, not who they were born. It wasn't because of who, their bloodline. It wasn't because any of them chose it. It wasn't because any man made it happen, but it was God that made it happen. It is God who initiates this peace process. It is God who puts everything on the table and says, this is what it's going to take for me and you to be friends again. This is what it's going to take for me and you to have peace. It was God who does that. Matter of fact, even, even the words that Paul uses in the original language, they, 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 they are accomplished by one person or one party. That's what it's articulating. Paul's not describing a situation where man and God come to a peace table and they sit down and say, this is what I'll do if you do that. They don't both put something on the table. Man comes, he has nothing to put on the table. The only thing he brings to the table is the sin of his life, the brokenness of his life, that guilt and that shame. That's what he brings to the table. And that sin stands between him and God. And God says, we can take that sin away so that you and I can be in a relationship, so that we can be at peace with each other if you believe that Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. Do you believe that? So we sit at the table and we say, I'm tired of trying to feel okay about myself. I'm tired of trying to do good works. I'm tired of, I've run out of money to give the church. I didn't have much to start with. I don't have any more time to give them at the church. I don't know what to do about my sin problem. I bring nothing here. And Jesus and God pushes across the table to me and you 
And he says, the death of my son is what you need. You take that and you and I are reconciled. You take that as being your own payment and you and I are reconciled. Peace is made. There's nothing that stands between us any longer because your sins have been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been made a son. All that's happened in that moment that you believe. And that's what is happening when God reconciles man to himself. It's all God. God put his sin on the table. And so man is made... So. In verse 20, it says that peace is made through the blood of the cross. In verse 22, it says that we're reconciled through that Christ's death. We were enemies, alienated and separated, but Christ's death and resurrection makes a way for all mankind to be at peace with God and be reconciled, be in harmony with him. Look in verse 20, and I want to show you something here. Verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile all. All. See it there, verse 20. All things to himself, having made peace through the blood. Who is God reconciling to himself? In looking at this passage, it would be easy for someone to walk away and say, Oh, so that really means, Smith, that I don't have to come here every Sunday morning because he's going to reconcile all. I don't have to believe what you say I need to believe because he's going to reconcile all. Well, anyone who would be believing that would be what they say, believing universalism. Meaning that everyone is going to be in heaven. Everyone is going to be saved. That's just going to happen to everyone. But you know what? You and I have probably read in your Bible enough, or you've heard it quoted whether you've read it or not, passages that don't seem to agree with that way of thinking, haven't we? So, for instance, you know, Matthew 25, 41 and 46 says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the internal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment. Someone in that passage is not all. And then Luke 16, Luke speaks of a great impassable gulf between heaven and hell. And those who rejected God are living in torment. Somebody is not all in that passage either. Second Thessalonians 1 says, Paul speaks of punishment on the wicked as everlasting destruction in the presence, from the presence of the Lord. So with all those verses in mind, it seems that it's possible that all, in our passage of Colossians here, does not mean salvation. What would it mean then? See, because there, there is a, a rule of biblical interpretation that we should understand. Now, before I even talk about that little rule of interpretation, let me just say this. This book here, and John 1 says that um, when we, says, speaks of this book as being the word, speaks of uh, revealing Jesus to us. In this book, we begin to understand God. In this book in Genesis, the very first chapter, if we pay close attention, and, and I didn't when I first read it, we pay close attention, all of a sudden he says, let us create. We begin to say, who's the us here? I thought it was just God. And we're tipped off that there's something else there. And we study and we find out that there's a God and a Son and the Holy Ghost. This book here reveals 
in Genesis 3 where he says, you sin and I'm going to punish you and woman, you're going to be burned this way, but I'm making a plan for redemption. Tips it off in Genesis 3. Genesis 12 refers to it again. Throughout the Old Testament, it's looking forward to something else. That something else is a someone else and that someone else is Jesus. And then when we hit the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the story of Christ and his ministry. It's the story of his redemption of mankind. It's the story where we get brought into that plan and just get swept up in it. And then from Acts and on forward, everything looks back at Jesus. This is what this book is talking about. All of that stuff is infinite in nature. All of that stuff is mind-blowing. It is mind-boggling. It is stuff that it's hard for us to put our head around completely because he is infinite and I am not. He is apart from time and I'm captured in time at this moment. No man has seen him. And yet, this book explains to him what we can know about him in this life. Having said all that, There are things about him that I don't understand. And that's where I fall back on my faith. And I say, I know this to be true, even if I don't understand it. I know this to be true, even if I don't understand it. Scripture reveals an infinite God to us. And in our minds, we cannot understand how we can t- how God takes what appears to be two opposing truths, two things that cannot exist with each other at the same time. And with God, he takes them and puts them side by side and they fit because he's God. But in my small pea mind, I'm like going, that can't be. He is God, it can be. And I, by faith, accept that as truth. Not fully understanding it, but fully believing it. There are aspects of God that are hard for us to comprehend. But then there are other parts of God. There are other parts of God that are not opposing truths, but sometimes there are truths that we have to dig out. And so let me just get back and say that this rule of interpretation is this, that the Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. So then if I read... And Matthew that says that, you know, depart from me and be tossed into everlasting punishment. And I read in Colossians and it says that oh, he is reconciling all. Well, then what do those passages mean? What conclusion am I to come to? One of them cannot be what I think it means. So since I have so many passages... And because of, just the way, because of the way we understand our Bible, because of the way we read our Bible, we're coming to the conclusion that Christ came and, he's, and that there are some who will perish and some who won't. So this passage must not mean that all are going to be saved. So what could it mean? Well, if we know from our text that all cannot be saved, then what could it possibly mean that all are reconciled? What do we know about all men? Let's, let's think about that. What do we know about all men? Well, we know that all men are created in the image of God, Genesis 3. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. We know that all owe a penalty for their sin, Romans 6. We know that all men know of God and his power, Romans 1. We know that God has made a way for all men and women and children to be reconciled to himself, Colossians 1, 
John 3.16, John 1.12. We know that all men will stand before the judgment seat of God, Revelation 20. And we know that all men will bow before Jesus. For this reason, this is Philippians, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. All men will stand before Jesus, will bow before Jesus. Of all those alls, and admittedly there are probably others that we haven't touched on, but of all these all men's that we have listed up there, I highlight the last one of Philippians 2. Did you note the similarity of Philippians 2 to Colossians 1 passage? Colossians 1 says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Philippians says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. You notice the similarities there? Is Philippians talking about all will be saved? No. It just says that Jesus is sovereign over all, and someday all will bend their knee before him. I would lean toward a conclusion that the passage is not speaking about universal salvation, but it's speaking about universal sovereignty. And, and so think of it like this. There is a time when all will be reconciled to God, accepting, um, either by accepting God's payment for their sins and the death of Christ alone by faith, and being reconciled to God that way, or by having to pay the penalty for their sins themselves and be destined to hell. Either way, all will be reconciled to God. The penalty would be paid either way. For many, for some, that penalty would be paid by Christ through their faith in him. By others, they will pay it themselves and their own eternal punishment apart from Christ. So, not all will be saved, but all will be reconciled. Not all will be saved, but all will be reconciled. And so, does the passage teach universalism, that all will be saved? I don't believe it does. There's another question that comes up. Read a little bit further in verse 23. Go to verse 23. And so, if you were to read a little further, matter of fact, let's just back up. I need to... It says, let me back up a few slides, give you some, con, some more passage here. Twenty-two. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. And now skip ahead to verse 23. If you're in your Bible, read it with me in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, am made a minister. Here is another apparent problem verse, and it is difficult to maybe parse out. 
There are many that believe that this verse right here, verse 23, would say that you will be blameless and above reproach if you continue firmly established and steadfast, concluding that the passage is speaking about entrance into heaven or salvation. That your salvation is conditional upon you being steadfast. But isn't it more in line with our understanding of eternal security? The belief that those who genuinely believe in Christ for salvation can never lose their salvation? Let me just make sure you understand that. There are many passages that we believe teach that once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, that you have placed genuine faith in Him, that you will not ever lose that salvation. And some would point to this pastor right here and say, see, you can. It says if you, if you continue, that you get to keep it. But if you don't continue, you lose it. Well, look at verse 22. Does it say your salvation? What does it say? What, do you, what, what is it possible in verse 22 that it's referring to as losing, being presented blameless above reproach? We know that all of us who believe in Christ will have to stand before the Lord someday and give an account of our works while we're on, that, we were, that we did while we're on this earth. The condition here is not about salvation, but about our presentation before Christ. He is not referring back to salvation. He's referring back to your presentation before Christ, being presented spotless, blameless, above reproach. And so on that day, if you are a believer, you will come before God, and God will say, so... You trusted my, my son, Jesus, as your Savior? You say, yes, I did. He goes, yes, I see, that's true. And then you'll say, so now let me see what you did with your time, your money, your, t- your resources. Let me see what you did with your life. Let me see what you did with everything about you after you came to Christ. Because did you know you're accountable for that? And some people will stand before him and say, no. Well, let me just say today, folks, unfortunately, I'm doing you a very great disservice because I'm telling you that you're going to go and stand before the Lord someday. If you believe in Christ and you take him as your Savior, you're going to stand before the Lord someday. And what he's going to say to you is, absolutely, you're coming into heaven. Now let me see what you did as a Christian, because you're accountable for everything you did. See, that is not easy believism. This is not like a ticket to get in. It's not like a free pass to go and get $200, you know, and get to party. Once you come to know Christ... You have, this, you have this, this, you do get this ticket that gets you into heaven, but you are still accountable. Everything you say, everything you do, what you do with your time, what you do with your money, what you do with your children, what you do with your home, everything about you is accountable now to Christ. And so we'll stand before him someday. And he'll say, let's look and see what you've done with your life since you trusted Christ. And some of us will stand there and say, this is all I have to give you, and it's my life. And he'll look at it and he'll say, well done. This is great. 
Come on in. I've got a very large mansion. I've got great responsibility. I have lots of things I need you to do in this new world, in this new heaven. And there are going to be some of us who he's going to say, I'm so disappointed for you. There is so much here that you could have had. So much. I'm really glad to have you here. You are my son. But I had hoped for so much more from you. Come on in. Let me show you what we have. Do you see the difference? See, if we do not persevere, if indeed you continue in your faith firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, when you are in that place, when you're in that place of being steadfast and not moving away, you're in a place of understanding what you're accountable for and then hoping to God that you're making choices that honor him and that use those resources and use your gifts and use your talents in a way that honor him. See, the passage is not saying that someday that, you, that if, you, if you don't continue, you're going to lose your salvation. The passage is speaking about what happens when you're presented before him. And let me just, I mean, again, this room is full of people who have at one time or another followed after Christ wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. And at some time or another, tripped, stumbled, and fell. And didn't get right back up. Didn't step back up and begin to follow him wholeheartedly immediately. And they stayed down for an hour They stayed down for a week. They stayed down for a month. They stayed down for a year. They stayed down for a decade. And then this one day, they heard that gentle voice calling them back, and they responded. They stepped back up. They dusted themselves off, and they said, Lord, I am sorry for my sin. I am sorry for my wandering. I am sorry that I've walked away from you, that I've lived in disobedience for all this time. I am sorry. And he says, I'm glad to have you back. I'm glad to have you back. Come on, let's celebrate. You see, if that person who has fallen in that decade had died during that decade, would they have continued in their faith, firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel? At that moment of their death, they probably were not continuing. Would they be unsaved? Would they be unsaved? You see, this is the question then. If you could, be, if you could fall and, and backslide and not follow the Lord for a decade, and during that decade you died, would you be unsaved? Well, some people say, well, after that long, obviously you weren't saved because you weren't living that way. Okay, then what about for a year? If you lived unsaved, if you lived you tripped, you stumbled, you weren't following after the Lord, you were drinking and partying and sleeping around. If you did that for a year and you died during the course of that year, would you be unsaved? I bet you there's no one in this room who would say that if I wandered for the Lord for an hour, that I'd be unsaved. They'd say, no, it was just an hour. 
Oh, so you mean that the time that you wander away from the Lord is the distinguishing factor. Oh, I get it. So I can wander for an hour and still be saved, but I can't wander for a year and still be saved. Or for a decade and be saved. So it's the time that matters. Right? No, you can't find that in Scripture. You see, we will fall. We will stumble. And some of us, we do it a lot, and we get back ourselves back up. Some of us, we do it once for a long time. I did for a long time. I walked away for a long time. Never once in those three years of walking away from the Lord and living an ungodly lifestyle did I ever think I was unsaved. Not once. I knew that he would accept me back as soon as I returned. I knew it. If you are here today and you're living that way, you know it too. And he's calling you back. He would love to have you come home and say, you know what? I've walked away. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you walked away, you're still saved. You just wandered off from home. He would love for you today to come home. He'd love for you today to come back. To come back and say, I'm sorry, I wandered away. Will you still have me? And the beautiful, beautiful thing you'll hear from him is absolutely, I have been waiting on you for so, so long. Come on in. Let's talk. Let's talk. We can't lose our salvation. Now, now then let me just speak to anyone who might be here and has never trusted Christ. A moment ago, I spoke about a time and a place where you'll stand before the Lord as believers and he'll make you accountable for everything you've done. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it doesn't matter what you've done. When you stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, what have you done with your life? He's going to say, what did you believe about Jesus? What did you believe about Jesus? And if you say, well, I heard that Smith guy preach about him. He wasn't that good. I wasn't very convinced, so I didn't believe anything. He's going to say, you heard it. You're accountable. What did you believe about him? And if your response is, well, I believe he's a good guy. I believe he was the right God for a lot of people. He wasn't the right thing for me. And he'll say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. That is not the right answer. And he'll say, depart from me. You, still, you stand before me in this moment still owing a debt, for pay, a debt for your sin. You still owe that debt. Your opportunity to take Christ as your Savior, to take Christ as the payment for your debt, passed when you died. That opportunity ended then. You are without opportunity now. And the only option you have is to pay for that debt through eternal punishment in hell. If you have never trusted Christ, I plead with you to not be in that position before God someday in the future. Instead, I plead with you to place your faith in him as your personal savior, to, pay, to, to understand that he paid your sin debt, 
and that all you have to do is understand that he paid it and believe that that sin debt was your own sin debt and that it's been paid for. And you can believe that by faith so that someday you'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, I know what you did with my son. You believed in him. Now let's talk about your being accountable for all that other stuff. Let me just say, there's a wide difference between those two things. Standing before the Lord and being told that you didn't believe in Christ and that you, you have, still have a sin debt that is unpaid and you'll be punished for that, that's terrible. That is unthinkable. I do not think that our minds can understand or fathom the depth of that punishment. But standing before the Lord over here and saying, welcome home, let's see what you did with your life. Let's be a, you're accountable for what you did with your life. That's an entirely different scenario. This morning, I'm asking that if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I'm asking you to come up after the service and let's talk about that. Let's take care of that. Let me just tell you how simple it is to believe in him and to, and to speak to him about that and to come into saving faith for him. This morning, if you're here and you've wandered away from the Lord and you want to come back, you can do that right now in your chair. You know that. But if you want to come up and talk to me about it and let's pray together about it, I'd love to do that with you as well. You see... This passage is not teaching that all will be saved. And this passage is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. This passage is teaching that some will be saved and those who are saved will never lose it. That's what it's teaching. Let's pray.